Welcome to Shorties, a short true crime story. Happy Thursday. Hello. Happy Thursday. Week one's almost over. Almost. One more day. We act as if like we don't love doing this. <laughs> I know we do. Only say. one more day. One more, it's really more one day to like the week to the weekend. It's exactly. Not we do love doing this. I really enjoy doing. I this. enjoy doing this too. I want to keep doing it with you. You want to keep doing this? Oh, yeah. Is this like your? Is this like a commitment to like? In I was saying writing that you would like to. Okay, my God. <laughs> yeah. No. It's this a, is our fourth recording. <laughs> I mean, but you're cutting all of that part out, so it's fine. Why? I thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> this is your commitment to me and me to you. <laughs> yes, yes. It's it's been it's verbalized. Public knowledge now. Okay, so I'm doing the story of Katie Sepich. Never heard of it. Okay. Love that. <laughs> Love it. Love that for me. Yeah. So it's Saturday evening, August 30th, 2003. 22-year-old Katie Sepich is going bar hopping with a huge group of friends in Las Cruces, New Mexico. They had all recently graduated from college, and tonight was a big party send-off for her boyfriend, Joe Bischoff. After graduation, Joe had decided to move back to his hometown over 200 miles away, and this was his very last night in town, so you know it's like yep. a big reason big to farewell. celebrate. Yeah. Katie and Joe had been dating for about eight months, and they seemed really, really happy. Joe moving back home was difficult, obviously, but they had spent a long time discussing it, and they both felt confident they could make a long-distance relationship work. In fact, Joe had purchased a promise ring for Katie and given it to her that very morning. Aww. It was a ring that she had had her eye on for a while that had her birthstone in it. And her friends remember that she was just like over the moon when he gave it to her. So she was proudly showing it off to everybody that night. I think promise rings are really cute. I do too. I think there's something so sweet about it and like almost old fashioned. Yeah. And it's like, I think a lot of things are really lame. Yeah. But that I think is very, very cute. I think it's a really sweet gesture it's yeah, just, it's, it's, it's just, just dedication yeah, it's, it's nice. just sweet and it's it's just meaningful for you too it's just for you too and I just think it's all that should be for you yeah know? exactly I think it's really cute so after closing down their favorite bar around 2 a.m the group of friends goes to a friend's house to continue the party and uh <laughs> I'm sure it goes without saying everyone by this time is extremely intoxicated Katie's roommate, Tracy Waters, decided to crash in one of the bedrooms, despite the fact that she and Katie lived only two blocks away. She said she'd been very drunk when she went to bed, but not long after falling asleep, she woke up and heard some of the people in the house asking, where's Katie? Has anyone seen Katie? But it didn't sound panicked. And so she, in her mind, it, it didn't occur to her that someone was asking like, where in the world is Katie? She thought like, where in oh, the she house in the bathroom? is Katie? Yeah. It was like that. You know, it's the end of the night. Everyone's drunk. You lose track of There's someone no and they're standing right behind you. It's, yeah. You know, so that's just what she chalked it up. So she goes back to sleep. The next thing she remembers, it's morning time and Joe is shaking her awake. He asks if she's seen Katie and Tracy's like, you're waking me up. No, I haven't. So she reaches for her phone, but Joe stops her and he says, Katie's phone is here at the house, but I can't find her anywhere. Her phone, her purse, her keys, her car, and her wallet are all here, but she took off last night. So obviously this jolts Tracy and now she's fully awake and she's like, why would she leave? Did you guys have a fight? She said it wouldn't have been unheard of for them to have had a fight, like gotten into a little tiff, especially because everybody's drunk and it's really late at night and you know, yeah. it just happens. So she said that that wouldn't have been uncommon. 
but it was very unusual for Katie to storm out in the middle of the night with literally none of her personal items. But Joe insisted that they did not fight at any point. He said they were all in the house together. Katie stepped outside. And then a little while later, as people started kind of scattering around to try to find a place to fall asleep, he couldn't find her. She seemed to have walked outside and just vanished into thin air. So Tracy immediately goes home, but there's no signs of Katie having come home at all. Tracy's mom was actually in town visiting and had slept at their house the night before, but she said that she never heard Katie come in either. So Tracy starts calling every single one of their friends, especially the ones who live in their neighborhood, but no one has seen or spoken to Katie since the night before. So Tracy starts calling all the hospitals in the area and even the local police department, but there's no record of Katie or anyone fitting her description being admitted to any hospitals or being arrested the night before. So Tracy is now sick to her stomach. She and Katie had been college roommates and after graduation, they had continued living together because they had become best friends. So she feels like she's exhausted all possibilities and decides it's finally time to call Katie's parents, Dave and Jayanne. She explains everything and she tells them she's on her way to file a missing persons report. An hour after going home from the police station, Tracy's surprised but somewhat relieved when the police call her and ask if she's willing to meet them at the hospital to identify someone that they think is Katie. And she is so relieved. She races to the hospital. She had this feeling in her gut that Katie going out on her own in the dark so drunk she was really worried that she got hit by a car and so in her mind valid concern that's she just had this this feeling in her mind that like she was hit by a car i just know it so now she's like okay i gotta go to the hospital so obviously she's probably just unconscious but when police lead tracy inside and they start heading downstairs to the basement her heart drops because it hadn't occurred to her until they approached the morgue that the police were actually asking her to identify a body, not a hospital patient. She said it was just like in the movies. They led her behind big doors into a cold and sterile room. They pulled the sheet back and she screamed when she looked in the face of her best friend. So it turned out that only a few hours before Tracy filed a missing persons report, police had responded to a call from a couple who stumbled upon a body that morning. The couple had gone out to an isolated area near the old Las Cruces landfill to do target shooting when they stumbled upon the partially nude body of a young woman. She had been brutally raped and strangled, and whoever did it attempted but failed to set her body on fire. Police verified right away that her body had been dumped at this location only a few hours before the couple found her. And this is New Mexico. It is out. They were out in the middle of nowhere. It's just the, you know, those scenes and shows that are just like open and open. Thinking of Breaking Bad. Literally, that's what it's like. And so the fact that they went target shooting and just happened to pass her and it was hours later after she. The chances of that are. The chances are wild. She had no ID on her and therefore was labeled a Jane Doe. But after Tracy filed the report, they put the puzzle pieces together. Not long after this, Dave, Katie's dad, arrives at the hospital. After Tracy called them that morning, he had immediately gotten in the car and drove 200 miles to Las Cruces. In his mind, he was going there to give his daughter a lecture on drinking responsibly because she had given everyone quite the scare. But when he walked in and saw police officers and a priest and a victim's advocate, he just knew. Like Tracy, Dave agrees to ID Katie's body, and he's led down to the morgue. Pulling the sheet back and seeing Katie on the table was an unimaginable pain that brought him to his knees. But it was when it was time to go 
to walk out of the morgue that he said he was struck with a pain that he just can't even describe. He said as he walked into the hallway away from the room, it occurred to him that he was walking away from his child for the last time. And he said that there are just no words to describe that feeling. When he called his wife to tell her, Jayanne said, are you sure? And he said, yes, I'm sure. I just saw her. She's dead. And Jayanne said that as horrific as this moment was, she felt like she somehow already had known because that morning when she woke up, she said that she had the worst pit of anxiety in her stomach, but she didn't know why. And then Tracy called and somehow deep down, she had somehow known already that Katie was gone. So naturally, Katie's boyfriend, Joe, is the prime suspect, Mm -hmm. as all partners are. Always. But all the witnesses from the night before stated that the night was fun. Joe and Katie seemed happy in themselves. There didn't seem to be any issues. And because Joe had denied the idea that he and Katie may have fought after Tracy went to bed, she believed that Katie was attacked by a stranger. And Katie's parents also believe this with 100% certainty. However, when Joe is interviewed by police... He tells them a completely different story. He says that after Tracy went to bed, Katie walked in on him fooling around with another girl at the party. <gasps> Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Oh, he- oh hell no. <laughs> oh, hell no. <laughs> they- this week is full of doozies. <laughs> this week, I, if you're a female listening to this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're, or boyfriends, if you're listening yeah. to this, you're about to get in a fight. Yeah. Joe said that they had a very brief heated exchange and then Katie turned around and stormed out of the house. So I think, you know, wherever he was, it was probably kind of private. People are already drunk and kind of falling asleep. So she probably walked in to acknowledge it or whatever really quickly. And then she just walked out. So technically a huge thing happened, happened, but it wasn't a loud yelling thing or a drawn out thing. So all the witnesses didn't really realize that something had gone wrong. How stupid do you have to be? Oh, just wait. Oh, Oh, he be stupid. Oh, he, oh, is that not clear? <laughs> oh, I just, I, I just didn't know if it got worse yeah, than that. He's just drunk. So he said that they had this brief exchange and Katie turned around and stormed out of the house. And Joe openly admits to police that while he loved Katie and considered her his whole world and he even wanted to marry her and it, he, he's genuinely seems devastated in the interview. He says that even with all of that, the truth is he's not faithful after he's been drinking. He says when he's drunk, he just doesn't care about anything, even his relationship. And he was like, you know, I know that that's terrible, but that's the truth. He said that after she stormed out, he tried calling her, but then he realized that her phone was still there. And when he realizes that her car is also there, he and a friend take her keys and they use it to drive around looking for her, but they don't see her anywhere. He said they returned to the party and he went back to the girl Katie had walked in on him with. Oh, cool. And the two of them slept on the couch together. Awesome. But when he woke up sober the next day, he realizes the severity of the situation, how dangerous it was for Katie to leave like that, and he immediately started panicking. He insists in his interview that he feels horrible and disgusted, but he does not know what happened to her after she walked out and he swore that he played no part in it. But the thing is, Police know by now that Katie had quite literally fought to the death. She fought for her life with every ounce of strength that she had. And as a result, she had an overwhelming amount of DNA under every single one of her fingernails. Wow. Can you imagine like fighting so hard that every single one, 
every single nail had something. They, they were, it was like a plethora. Wow. So police requested a DNA sample from every person that Katie came into contact with the day that she died, which totaled somewhere between 30 and 40 people. Every single one of them promptly provided a sample, except for one person, her boyfriend, Joe. Wouldn't he have like disturbing amounts of scratches and you know what I mean? If you're just, okay, well, well, I'll just I mean, he should, but yeah. After being very cooperative initially, he was now suddenly clamming up and he hired an attorney and he refused to speak to police again. And so if you refuse to speak to police, you're not in a room with them where they can ask you, can you take your shirt off? Because that's, that's part of the standard questioning is if they're interviewing a suspect and the, he claims that he, you know, he's not responsible. They'll ask, will you undress so that we can examine your body for marks and scratches and all those things. And Mm -hmm. he refused to talk to them again. So so they they, they couldn't get that. Katie Sepich was born on December 26, 1981. So she's a Capricorn. Her family described her as a spitfire from the day that she was born. She had had endless amounts of rambunctious energy as a kid. And then she had grown into the most magnetic young woman who was just bursting with vibrant light. The idea that someone like her, someone who was so full of life could be gone. It was really hard for her loved ones to compute that idea. Mm -hmm. And this girl had a lot of loved ones. Really? Over a thousand people attended Katie's funeral. And she's 22 when she died. Holy moly. There were hundreds of people who couldn't even fit in the church. So huge speakers had to be set up outside so that they could hear the service. By this time, police have already shared with Katie's parents that Joe is the prime suspect. And because of this, Joe is the only person to ever cross paths with Katie who was not welcome at her service. Katie's roommate, Tracy, couldn't believe that he was a suspect because, you know, they, they know the truth they know about his interview now and so as as bad as this looked on him and as disappointing as it was to hear that katie spent her last moments feeling betrayed by her boyfriend yeah tracy just couldn't believe that joe is capable of rape and murder and katie's parents were just as shocked they were heartbroken to hear that this young man that they had welcomed into their home into their family someone their daughter loved so much might be responsible for her death it, it just it was too much Katie was liked by literally everyone. Her mom said that she was just that type of unique person who could say anything to anyone and you just couldn't get mad at her, you know? And so even during times where maybe it would have been justified disliking her, you just Just couldn't couldn't help but like her. So it was just like, (laughs) I know. Damn, I'm going to get some of that. (laughs) I don't know what that's like. She did not meet someone who did not like her. So as cheesy as it sounds to know her was to love her. You know, for as shocking as this was and understandable that her suspicious acting boyfriend could be responsible, the fact that he knew her as well as he did and then like- He still did that to her is disgusting. But but that's the thing is that they were just like, but no one, if you knew her, you you could not have done this. So it has to be a stranger. Like her whole, everyone who knew her was just like, I know that looks bad, but it's really hard to believe. If that's true, that's- a devastation on yeah. on a totally different level. I get level. that. That makes sense. Jayanne had taught all of her kids to make a list of important things that they want in a partner and then make another list of deal breakers. She told them that when they meet a new love interest, hold them to the list and see how they compare. And she remembers clear as day when Katie met Joe, she had excitedly called her mom and said, he checks all the boxes on the list and he doesn't have any deal breakers. And then, you know... It, it, 
I just want to cry for her. Granted, the couple lived like 200 miles away from her parents. So they, it's not like they were over at their house every day, but mm. they had been dating for the better part of a year. And so her parents just, this was already such a devastation. And then to know that it could have been someone like that, it was, it was really, really difficult for them to, to process that. Or so was. But regardless, this is technically just a theory and police need to prove once and for all through DNA that Joe is either responsible or he isn't. So they pull out all the stops. Detectives set up a hidden camera at Katie's grave just in case Joe decided to visit her and uh, unburden his mind. But a sprinkler knocked it over and no viable footage was recovered. So they try going through his trash to get any items that may have DNA on them, which doesn't pan out. And then they remember... Joe told police in his initial interview that he and Katie had had sex in her bed the day before she died. So they test her bed sheets and they find that Joe's DNA from her bed does not match the DNA found under her fingernails. After relaying this to Joe, his attorney agrees that he should now provide a full DNA sample. And this is when Joe Bischoff is finally 100% cleared as a suspect. This came as a very bittersweet relief to Katie's loved ones. Tracy felt relief that her gut instinct about Joe was correct. Katie's parents were so relieved that their daughter did not spend her last moments looking into the face of someone that she knew and loved as he strangled her. But now this means a monster is still out there and no one has a single clue who it could be. After investigating Tracy and Katie's home, police find evidence that leads them to this theory. They think that after fighting with Joe... Katie walked out of the house in a drunken anger. After realizing that she had left all her stuff behind, she must have continued on anyways and walked the two short blocks home, hoping to find a way inside without her keys. They think that she went to her bedroom window on the side of the house and was attempting to remove the screen and crawl inside when she was surprised by her attacker. There were signs of a huge scuffle having taken place outside of her bedroom window. The screen was missing, one of her shoes was left behind, and there were imprints in the ground that made them think that she was likely raped and strangled right there. But the thing about that is that no one heard a single thing. And this was 3 o'clock in the morning. The girls lived in a typical suburban neighborhood in a single-family home. So her neighbor's houses are literally feet away. Yeah. And remember I mentioned um, earlier that Tracy's mom had been in town and was sleeping at their house. The room that she was in was directly next to Katie's, yet she did not hear a single thing. And this is when Katie's parents informed police that since the time she was a baby, Katie was incapable of screaming. She had a very husky voice, and her mom said that whenever she would try to scream, it would just come out like, ah, like oh, that. Wow. So Katie likely screamed, but couldn't be heard. no sound came out. At some point in the investigation, Katie's mom um, had said something to a detective like, you know, well, at least we know this monster is going to be arrested again at some point, and then we'll get a DNA swab and we'll be able to match him. And the detective told her, um, actually, no, that isn't how it works. It's illegal in almost all states to take a DNA sample just because someone is being arrested. This was a shocking thing to learn, and it became a pivotal moment in Jayanne's life and her grief for that matter. Because in the days after Katie's murder, Jayanne realized her family was now at a fork in the road. Statistically speaking, most marriages end after the loss of a child. But she and Dave had been together for 32 years by this time, and they still had two other young kids. 
And so Jayanne said that she made a conscious decision that no matter how devastating this was, this would not tear their family apart. She didn't know how they were going to make it through, but she knew that they would figure it out together. So when she learns that it is not standard procedure to collect DNA when making an arrest, like the way that you do with like fingerprints, she decides that she's going to do everything in her power to change that. And this becomes the avenue in which her, her family channels their grief. She and Dave dedicate their lives to learning everything they can about laws pertaining to DNA collection and the justice system and, and all of that stuff. And this started out as a fight for justice for their daughter, but the more that they learned, the more they realized how crucial it is to collect DNA to solve past crimes and prevent future crimes, therefore saving countless other people from suffering the same fate that Katie did. So for years, police continued investigating and looking for DNA hits in CODIS. Katie's parents continued advocating for change. And then finally, in 2006, they get a break in the case. The DNA found under her fingernails finally found its match in 27-year-old Gabriel Avila, who was currently in a New Mexico prison. So remember that Katie was murdered in August of 2003? Mm -hmm. It turns out three months later in late November, two young college students in Las Cruces woke up in the middle of the night when a man broke into their apartment. The girls barricaded themselves in the bathroom and called 911, and luckily they were not harmed. And when police arrived, they arrested Gabriel, who had a knife on him, and he was convicted of aggravated robbery and sent to prison. So basically, he had been sent to prison a few months after he murdered Katie. And had it been standard procedure to collect DNA at the time of an arrest, Gabriel's sample would have been submitted to the CODIS database a lot sooner, and Katie's murder would have been solved almost immediately. Nevertheless, it was eventually solved, and when faced with the DNA evidence, Gabriel confessed to police. He stated that he had been in Katie's neighborhood around 3 a.m. to buy cocaine when he almost hit a stumbling drunk girl walking on the sidewalk. He said he rolled his window down and asked if she needed help or a ride somewhere, and Katie responded, no, I'm okay, I, I live nearby, and she kept walking. He said he... He said, I I don't know if I believe this. He said he drove away, but then he circled back and saw her struggling to get the screen off of a bedroom window. And he claims that he does not know what came over him, but he got out of his car and attacked her. He confirmed the detective's theory that the assault and murder happened right there under her bedroom window and that she couldn't muster a scream for help. On December 26, 2007, Gabriel Avila was sentenced to 69 years in prison. That should have been Katie's 26th birthday. After his sentencing, Gabriel requested to meet Dave and Jayanne face-to-face, and surprisingly, they agreed to. He apologized to them and said that he didn't know why he did what he did, and if given the chance, he would undo it in a second. doesn't help anybody. Like, hearing that, it's like... (laughs) Well, for Dave and Jayanne, they said that witnessing genuine remorse from him made it easier for them to forgive him. They were very clear they don't want him ever released from prison. You know, they're so grateful he was caught and they think that's where he should be for the rest of his life. But they stated that they do wish him salvation. After Katie's college graduation, her mom had asked, what do you plan on doing with your new business degree? And Katie responded, I don't know, mom, but I know that I'm going to change the world. So although her life was cut short, her parents remembered those words and they have worked tirelessly to make sure that Katie's brief presence on this earth did in fact change the world. And in 2013, 
Then President Obama signed into law the Enhanced DNA Collection Act of 2010, which is more commonly referred to as Katie's Law. This allows for expansive DNA collection when someone is arrested for, charged with, or indicted for crimes involving murder, manslaughter, sexual assaults, kidnapping, and abduction. So the amount of people that this law has saved is endless, yet the bittersweet beauty of it is that we'll never really know just how many people Katie's Law has saved. In fact, Dave and Jayanne have said that at times it can be hard to grapple with the amount of effort that they've put into pushing for Katie's Law because they'll never know the names and stories of the people that they're helping. Dave has even said a few times, quote, in some ways I'm eager to get to heaven so that way we can finally learn about all the people we've helped. And that is the story of Katie Seppich. I feel like speechless. <laughs> just I just keep fixating on the fact of like, it's like if it's not, it's not a spouse or it's not a partner, it's right outside your bedroom door. I mean, it's like there's so many things that are just too close to home in yeah. some sort of sense. Yeah. And it's really upsetting. Or just those two girls waking up in their room and there's a oh man there gosh. and they have to lock themselves in their bathroom. It's like the concept of your, the, what's supposed to be safe, which is like your relationship, your love, your home. Yeah. Not being safe at all. And those two girls, um, the two college uh, roommates that, the, the man broke into their apartment. Their names were Leslie and Anella. And they had actually said that they had realized for a few months that they had a peeping Tom who was regularly outside their windows, peeking in, fiddling with the doors. Like, mm -hmm. And it really did freak them out. And they contacted their neighbors. Mm -hmm. They switched up their, their routines and their schedules. They took um, self-defense classes. Wow. They told everybody. They did everything correct other than, I mean, I would have just moved. But yeah. outside of moving, they, they, did they did everything the to protect themselves. They did everything to be aware of what was happening. Hindsight's twenty twenty. So, like, looking back, they're like, yeah, you know, that was really scary. We probably should have just moved, whatever. Of course. But at the time it was like, well, maybe he is just a peeping Tom. Maybe, maybe that's all this is. And that's really unsettling, but we'll just do the, our best to protect ourselves. So the night that he broke in, it was late November. This is three months after Katie's death. Both of the girls are in their bedrooms sleeping. Mm -hmm. One of the girls said that she was on the phone with her boyfriend that at the time and she had terrible anxiety like just the worst this this pit of anxiety in her stomach that Something just was wrong it, it, she just she couldn't settle she couldn't relax so she had asked him would you stay on the phone until i fall asleep and he did so she falls asleep she's she's asleep for who knows how long and she said she, when she woke up she didn't just wake up she woke up bolting like mid bolt out yeah. of bed and she knew someone was in their apartment like she said it was as if someone had, you know, nobody had, but it felt like someone was like, get up, get up. There's someone in here or, uh, you know, that's your gut. One of those. Uh, yeah. Like one of those situations where she, she even said in like one of the interviews, she's like, I don't know if I heard like a noise or something, but that, you know, that's not you hear it noises all the time. You hear, you live in an apartment complex, you hear noises and you have a roommate. So that, that doesn't mean anything. No, it's your gut. She got up and bolted down the hall to her, her roommate's room. And her roommate, Anella, gets out of bed and looks down the hallway, the dark hallway, and there's just a dark oh figure standing at the end of the hall. So she had run past him ultimately then? 
I don't think it was like that. I think she was closer to the guy and then she ran away from him down the hall to her roommate's room. Okay. And then when her roommate got up to like look out the hallway, he was there, there. was a dark figure at the other end of the hallway. Hor- so she slams, she slams the door, locks it and they're standing there panicking. And all of a sudden he's jiggling the door. So yeah, then oh my God, you and I would be there. Yeah. So, so yeah. they're, they're totally freaked. And then when they, he like realizes it's locked, he can't get in through the door. He leaves. So they're standing there like, what do we do? What do we do? And all of a sudden they realize he's behind them at the window trying to get in. So they bolt <sighs> into the bathroom, close the door, barricade themselves and call 911. And you can, I should have said this at the beginning. I got all this information from a Dateline episode, but they they play the nine one one call, and it's it's so unsettling because she's like whispering. She's like, "This is my name. This is where I am. This is what's happening." And all of a sudden, the girls are just screaming. Because he's right and, there, and they they the the operators like, "I need you to calm down. What's happening? Is he in there? Are the cops there yet?" Like, and sh- they're just screaming at the top, and it's just loud and chaotic. And he was in the house for like three minutes before the police arrived and arrested him. But she said that she just, Anella is the one who called. Leslie's the one who had that gut feeling that like shot her out of bed. And then Anella said that she was just like, he picked the wrong girl. I am not a victim. And if anyone's going to die tonight, it's going to be him. And there was something or someone looking out for them because they were technically like sitting ducks. They were sleeping in their apartment and he managed to get in. It seems like maybe he was either beginning this maybe career of, of this of sort of spree. a thing. Uh, yeah. Or, or maybe not, who knows, but it's just really so unsettling. sad that like after that kind of crime, it's just like the whole thing is very bittersweet because yeah. if Katie's law had been in existence at the time of her death, it wouldn't have saved her, but it would have totally changed his ability to do something like that in the future. In, in the future. And so there's beauty in the fact that this all happened the way that it did because of, of the change that her parents have done and the, in the fight that they took on. Mm-hmm. But they also spent years and years and years just wondering if he would ever be caught and wondering yeah. how many other people is he doing this to that we just don't know about. And yeah. And I think as you get older, you start realizing like how delicate mental health in general is like, it's not something that what happened to those two girls is enough to change you forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether that be anxiety and like coping, being able to sleep alone, it's like he has forever changed them. And luckily they're very strong. And it sounds like she's is the type of woman she, where she's like, this isn't going to affect me. Yeah. I'm going to hurt you. Yeah. And that's wonderful. But you don't know who that's going to happen to. And you never want to be in that position. No, you, it's not fair Feeling to ever be in your home. No, it's, it's not. Awful. It's not fair to be put in the position of you know, wow, she's so strong. She's that type of person. Well, she didn't ask to be that type of person. She didn't ask to be tested like that. She just wanted to go to sleep in her house. Yeah, (laughs) and it's just awful. I I like was reading after the school shooting in Texas, I was reading this article about how all these people were just talking about what heroes the teachers are and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, but they didn't ask to be heroes. They just wanted to go to work and then go home at the end of the day. And you know, this, they're not like a frontline worker in any capacity. Like they're not serving, they're not, they're not signing their lives away. So it's, it's beautiful to acknowledge when somebody makes a a massive psych, the ultimate sacrifice. But at the same time, it's like a victim is never asking for any of that. So It's just so unfortunate that the judicial system is set up in the way that it is. It was mind boggling to me too, that it was not standard procedure to collect 
a DNA swab. Until what, 2000 and, what they said 10, 2007? It was passed in 2013. It was signed into law in 2013. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that was really well done. Thank you for telling us that story. Thanks. Love you. I love you. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram and TikTok at Shorty's Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Shorty's Podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina.